you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, it is so good to see all of you who are here with us in person. want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, if you are new with us, whether in person or online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We honor you. We're grateful uh, to be able to spend this morning with you as we have a great time of singing praises up to God, diving into God's word, and uh, just see what God has for us. And I believe that each person who hears my voice, whether you're in person, live online, listening or watching later on, I believe that God has something specific he wants to show you this morning. So you are not here by accident. And I hope that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will reveal what it is that he has for each and every one of us. And so I'm going to open us in a word of prayer as we get ready to talk. um, As we continue our belief series, we're going to talk about the topic of forgiveness today. And so recognizing that it could be a heavy topic for many of us. So let's go to the Lord. Let's seek him first. Then let's, let's go where the passage leads us this morning. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person who is part of our service today, whether they're here in person live, watching online live, listening to the podcast later, watching the sermon later. God, I pray that um, wherever we are physically, we would know that we are um, here engaged to hear what you have for us. And wherever we are relationally with you, may we draw one step closer this morning. God, I pray that um, as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. And God, especially as we enter into a topic uh, that can be heavy, Holy Spirit, may you comfort us and guide us. May you meet us here and may we um, draw close to God, um, the Father, through your power, Holy Spirit. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. And as you're turning there, um, you know, again, we're, we're talking about the topic of forgiveness. And so uh, we want to, you know, as parents, we want to raise our kids up in the way that they should go early on. And so we've talked before that if someone does something wrong or if they do something that hurts someone, we want to make sure that our kids learn to say, I'm sorry. Um, and then we have that moment of forgiveness. And so, you know, sometimes, at least I remember growing up, when my dad, he, I don't remember what he said. He just said something small, and he said, I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. And he said, you know, it's not okay. Like, it's this moment of saying, saying it's okay kind of almost dismisses it sometimes. Instead, he's like, will you, will you forgive me? I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll forgive you. So trying to pass that type of message down to our girls. And so Elise, about the time, she was probably around two years old. And so um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember she did something that was like, honey, you know, that's, that's not okay. Can you say, I'm sorry? She says, I'm sorry, daddy. And I say, I forgive you. She says, I forgive you too. And I said, but I didn't do anything wrong. And she says, me neither. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, we're going to have to go backwards and we're going to have to, we're going to have to unpack this a little bit more because, you know, and as parents, you know this, right? Parents, grandparents, when it's like, you don't want to laugh in those moments because you want to have teaching moments, but sometimes you're like, yeah, that's just hilarious, you know? So, um, me neither. So, recognizing that, you know, that's a, that's a very lighthearted example of, of forgiveness and a conversation about forgiveness. But if you'll bear with me, we're going we're gonna to take a pretty quick turn from something that's lighthearted. 
uh, just kind of the idea of sometimes we don't know that we need forgiveness. Sometimes we don't think what we've done is wrong. Sometimes we're like, I didn't do anything wrong either. But what I want to do is unpack how, how for some of us, this topic of forgiveness will immediately, will immediately take us back to something that happened days, weeks, months, years, decades ago. Something that we've held on to. Either something that we've done to others that we're, we're still sad about. Something that has been done to us that is still painful. And I want to acknowledge that this is a heavy topic that we can laugh about, but we cannot dismiss it. So to give a, a, a personal example that's more serious, I've shared the story with many of you if you've been part of our church body before. Um, but recognizing that uh, when I was in high school, I remember that um, my mom's dad, so my grandpa, uh, he was passing away and his wife, so it was my mom's stepmom, was the one that kind of kept him from us. Because one of the things that's like, uh, one of my fun facts that you get to share about your family history is that my great-grandfather on my mom's side founded the San Diego Zoo, which is very cool. Like, you could go and you could see the bust of Dr. Harry Wegaforth uh, over in there. I don't know where it is now because I keep moving places, but it's there. And so we've taken pictures, and it's like, oh, that's my great-grandpa. I'm telling the girls, that's your great-great-grandpa. And so one of the questions that almost immediately comes afterwards is, well, do you get to go in for free? And I say, no. And there's this awkward moment where it's navigating the facts that, well, the reason that we're not able to go in for free is because my mom's family was very wealthy and had some uh, bigoted attitudes. And so my dad, who's 100% Pacific Islander from the island of Guam, uh, specifically the Chamorro tribe, he wasn't white. And so when my mom married my dad, her side of the family completely cut us off. So never met my grandpa, never met any of siblings, or not siblings, any other relatives on that side. And so I get to see my girls who are growing up and have a good relationship with their grandparents. And I'm, on one side of the coin, I'm, so, I'm, I'm grateful that they get to have that. And on the other side of the coin, I mourn the fact I didn't. So there's a letter that um, my brother and I, my mom was like, do you want to say anything to you know, your grandpa um, and his wife. And my brother wrote like a longer message, um, and I don't remember all the details, but, you know, expressing hurt and frustration and anger. And all I wrote, I think I was 14 at the time, all I wrote was to her, I just wrote, you robbed me of a grandpa. That was it. And so when I'm sharing this, and as we unpack this passage together, the last thing I would want you to do is to think, well, you know, he's, he's a pastor, he, he's preaching on the topic, so therefore he has it all figured out. I'm not a paradigm of virtue. I'm, I'm a fellow sojourner on this journey with you that's unpacking what God's word says about a topic that's hard for all of us. And it can be a weight that holds us down and holds us back from the life that God has. As we're in this series called Belief, we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed as kind of a, a structure. Not the Apostles' Creed, it never takes the place of Scripture, but it's a way to describe and it's a way to point out what were the beliefs from the very beginning of the early Christian church. What was it that united the belief system of people back then, of Christians back then? So I'm going to read it, and we spent the first week talking about God the Father. The second week, we spoke about Christ, about Jesus Christ as God the Son. The third week, we talked about God the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to read this together to kind of reorient just where we're at in 
this section of remembering what people believed for thousands of years since the very beginning of Christendom and what we're going to focus on today. The first part says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. We took a moment to unpack that that means that word hell is not the word Gehenna, which means the weeping and gnashing of teeth that Jesus uses for hell. That word in the Greek, the original Greek is Hades, which is the realm of the dead. In other words, Jesus actually really and truly died. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't passed out. He really and truly died. But that wasn't the end of the story. As we continue on, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. We unpack that the word Catholic means universal. So before there was any schism or division between Catholic and Protestant, the word Catholic was just used for the universal church. So if we were to update this to more um, modern nomenclature and modern verbiage, we might say something like just the Holy Christian Church or the Holy United Church, but the idea of it's all people who follow Jesus. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, which is what we're going to land on today, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So before I unpack Matthew 18, 21 through 35, it's important to acknowledge why, why is the forgiveness of sins something that we need to make sure that we truly believe in the power of? Because we can say, oh, you know, please forgive me my sins. Oh, it's okay. No, this is not a lighthearted conversation. Instead, the reason forgiveness of sins is so vitally important it's because going back to the very beginning of time, to the very beginning in the Bible, from the very beginning when there was a sin, when Genesis 3, when the fall of man, they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. But that, was not, that would not suffice. And it wasn't until a, a, an animal had to be slain and skins would cover up their shame that that is where we see that from the very beginning, in order for forgiveness of sin to take place, there has to be the shedding of blood. And we see this all throughout Leviticus, and we see this in the explanation of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the temple, and then Jesus coming. And as Hebrews 9 tells us, go to the next slide. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So here's what we need. We need to remember the forgiveness of sins is real. Why? Because... Jesus came, and if there's forgiveness does not, is not real, if we cannot be forgiven of sins, then Jesus came and died for what? He paid the price, but if there wasn't really a bill to be paid, then why did he suffer? Why did he die? Why was he buried? Why was he raised to new life? See, we need to hold on to the fact that forgiveness of sins can take place. But there's a second reason as well. The second reason we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, and 17 that says this, for if the dead are not raised, this talks about the resurrection of the body. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So friends, we need to fully grasp the importance of the forgiveness of sins. Because if sins can't be forgiven, then Jesus died for nothing. And if he died and didn't raise to new life and we aren't forgiven, then we are still in our sin. There's no hope for us in eternal life. 
Forgiveness of the sins has to be so foundational to our understanding of who God is, the fact that justice needs to be paid for when there's a sin, but the recognition that love comes from the fact that Jesus demonstrated, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, we weren't good people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to unpack that because the forgiveness of sins is paramount to our hope for eternity. And it's also foundational to how we live our lives today. We're going to look at three different roles in forgiveness. And we're going to look at the same person in this parable from Matthew 18, 21. And acknowledging that we might be in the, playing different roles at different times. But we're all the same person, just like this parable unpacks. So the first person, the first role that we look at from the servant in this passage is the one who did wrong, the one who was in debt, the one who did something wrong. And, and we're going to unpack today, you're going to see that forgiveness and settling of accounts and debts, we're going to see that the idea of forgiveness is a very um, financial transactional term. In fact, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, we see forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's acknowledging that there is a, there's an actual cost when sins take place and forgiveness is what can settle those accounts. So the first fact we need to see is that sometimes we are the one who did wrong. We messed up. We are at fault. Peter introduces this conversation in verse 21 because Peter goes to Jesus. He came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And we're going to stop there for a moment because the rabbinical law or the rabbinical idea from the rabbis, from the Old Testament religious leaders, what they said is that you can forgive someone three or maybe four times, but beyond four times, you don't need to keep forgiving them because they keep doing this, they keep messing up, whatever it is. And so the idea is Peter's already showing a little bit more grace than would have been normal during this time. He says, up to seven? Like, what, I'm going to go above and beyond what the rabbis say. Do I forgive people up to seven times? And Jesus' response is, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or some of your passages, the, the, the numbers in the Greek and originally in the um, Hebrew where this comes from, can say either seven times or 70 times seven times. The point is this. It's not writing down, oh, it's the 48th time, so now I'm going to forgive and now it's done. Nor is it saying 70 times, so, okay, it's the 489th, I had a real moment of brain math series, uh, 489th time and the next time I'm done. The point is that we have a heart to continuously forgive. A heart that acknowledges our own debts, which therefore allows us to forgive others of theirs towards us. So it's not seven times, it's not 77 or it's not sometimes, it's either 77 or 70 times seven. It's to have a heart, a perfect heart for forgiveness, which is incredibly hard to do. But nonetheless, Jesus illustrates this in a parable starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Again, settle accounts. No, notice the financial verbiage that comes to settling and forgiveness and debt. Verse 24. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. We'll stop there. 10,000 bags of gold is, um, back then or now, a lot. That's a lot of debt that this man, the servant, owed towards the king. 
And he knew that he could not pay. Like, this is an amount that's so big. Our debt is so unpayable. It's impossible to be able to pay it on our own. But this servant, he says, 10,000 bags of gold was owed to the king. And the king brings him in. And here's what we see as we continue on in the story. He said, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now that is, that would be normal at the time. The idea would be that if you can't pay back the debt, then your family suffers and your family set into slavery and then until they can pay off the debt. And if not, then their kids and their kids and the generations can continue. So the idea was this man had such a big piece of debt. He couldn't pay it by himself. And even his family was going to have to pay the price of his transgressions, of his debt. Then it says this, At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. See, when we are the ones who did wrong, we recognize that we messed up. But you know what we want? What we ask for, we want mercy for ourselves. We want someone to show kindness to us. We want someone to recognize to pay the debt. So on the screen, it's we want mercy for ourselves when we are the ones who, were wrong, who did wrong. We want a benevolent master or king to forgive us of everything. And the fact that the king looks at this and he says, 10,000 bags of gold, it's forgiven. The, the, the accounts have been settled. The, the weight of the scales have been evened out. You no longer owe 10,000 packs of gold. And so sometimes for us, what ends up happening is that we think about different things when we're different roles. We are the one who has done wrong. We acknowledge that we may ask for forgiveness and we may think that we get it, but the problem is that even when we've asked for forgiveness, even if we may know 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is just and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We may know that theologically and intellectually, and yet we walk around with the weight of what we've done wrong. We think about those harsh words that we said that we can't take back. We think about those loving words we didn't say that we wish we could have given. We think about those moments of anger, those moments, those short bursts of frustration. We long for the ability to make things right. And sadly, sometimes some of the people that we've hurt or have been hurt by are no longer with us. So how do we let that, how do we not walk around with the weight of the things we've done wrong? Especially when we think of the vast number of our own transgressions, our own debts, the ways that we fall short, our past, present, and future sins, the sins that we know that we think about that we don't even do, but yet Jesus tells us that even our thoughts, even our thoughts can be sin if we go against someone. So we may walk around with the weight of being the one who did wrong, but that's not the only role that this servant has. This role also is the one who was wronged. The one who was wronged because after he left and there's this moment of the weight that must have been off his back to be able to say 10,000 bags of gold has been cleared off my account. I'm going to go forth and I am going to show the same mercy and grace to others. Except he doesn't. The one who was wronged, what happens next? Verse 28. 
But when that servant went out, again, that servant, that's the exact same one. We're not changing characters. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Remember, this is the man who just had all that forgiven. So let's do, let's do some math together. The, when you look in the Bible, when it says bags of gold, the actual Greek word there is this idea of the word talent. And when you look at this verbiage here that says silver coins, it's the idea of a denarius. So how much did each of these servants owe? How much did the servant, how much is 10,000 bags of gold? And how much is 100 denarii? So 100 silver coins equals 100 denarius. So one denarius is one day's worth of wages. So you see an example underneath of one coin, one silver coin that you would go and you'd work the fields or wherever you were and you're, you're, you know, you'd be paid one coin. And so we could think about how much, you know, eight hour day based on how much, you know, how much an hour people make. Like that's a decent amount of money to owe someone a hundred denarii because that's a hundred days worth of wages. I mean, that's over three months worth of wages on a daily schedule. So that's how much the servant was owed by this other guy. But let's unpack how much that is in comparison to the 10,000 bags of gold. The next slide shows us this. That 6,000 denarii, so if one denarii is a day's wage, 6,000 denarii is one talent. In other words, there has to be 6,000 days of work to pay back one talent. Therefore, it's the same amount of wages if you worked every day for 16 years, or six days a week for 16 years for one talent. Did the servant owe the king one talent? No, he owed 10,000 talents. So let's unpack that. 10,000 talents would be 60 million denarii, or 60 million days of work. It'd be wages if you worked every day, or excuse me, six days a week for 160,000 years it would take to pay that off. We're not talking about one person being able to pay that off in a lifetime. We're talking about generational debt that goes beyond anything that is fathomable. fathomable. And it's the acknowledgement that, well, let's, let's, let's give another illustration. Let's say on the screen, we see a house that's worth $600,000 in Gilbert, Arizona. Full disclosure, I did not do a $600,000 house in San Diego because it would have been a one-bedroom shack. So I ended up finding one in Gilbert, Arizona for $600,000. Imagine this, you owed whatever it would take to buy that cash in hand right now. And you owe that and it was just completely set free. You don't owe it anymore. You don't have to worry about paying off Gilbert, Arizona's house for $600,000. And yet, knowing that freedom, knowing you've been let go of that and released and canceled of that debt, you go after a friend who owes you the equivalent of one small side of cinnamon twists at Taco Bell. It's a 600,000 times difference between what he was owed and went after the other servant for and what he was released and the debt was canceled for. It's go, putting someone in jail for cinnamon twists when you've been released from paying for a house. And I get it, cinnamon twists are mildly delicious, not worth going to jail for. So this is the idea. When we come and we recognize that we have the weight of the things that we've done, 
that we know we've fallen short. We know that we've hurt people. We know there's that. But what happens when you multiply that or you add the weight of what people have done to you and yet we hold on to it still? What does that weight look like as you go about your life, as you walk through life, holding on to not just what you did wrong, but what others have done wrong to you? We continue on. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. Does that sound familiar? Is that not word for word what he said to the king and experienced grace? Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary about this passage, talks about how there's a difference between receiving grace and experiencing grace, or receiving forgiveness and experiencing forgiveness. We've talked about how this is a financial um, settlement of doubts. It's a transactional word, this idea of forgiveness. But if forgiveness is purely something that's received transactionally, and so it's received and it's great, but it has not permeated into every fiber of our being, we've received it, we've not fully experienced it, so we're reticent to dispense it. Because friends, maybe you're like me, maybe you're better than me, and I hope you are, but there are times when I know someone's done something wrong to me, big, little, whatever it is, and if I can be honest, there are times when I want to hold on to that. I want to lord it over them. I want it to be something that's in my back pocket as a trump card if there's ever a reason when maybe I do something wrong, like, well, what about that time? But friends, what do we learn in 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't have a trump card that we hold on to in the moment where we want to prove our point or be right. Instead, it's the acknowledgement that I may want to hold on to that, but the longer I hold on to what other people have done wrong to me, they may not even know that it's impacted me for decades. And yet, here I am walking around with the weight of what others have done wrong. See, when it comes to when we are the ones who did wrong, we want mercy for ourselves, but we want, friends, we often want justice for others when they've wronged us. We say, be patient with me. 600,000 times amount is, is 60 million denarii are forgiven. Then one six hundred thousandth of that, someone says, be patient with me, and we say, no. We send them off and we let them go into prison and we hold on to the weight that we're not meant to hold on to. So as we close, we've got the one who did wrong. We carry that weight when we've wronged people. The one who was wronged. And sometimes, friends, I don't know and I don't pretend to know what you've experienced. And I'm not trying to diminish that. It's not okay what people have done but we can still forgive because it's not about them and diminishing what they've done. It's about setting us free. You know why? Because if we hold on to the weight of what we've done and what they've done, that we were once wronged, we've done wrong. If we're not careful, we're going to get this forgiveness thing all wrong. The one who did wrong, the one who was wrong and the one who got it wrong. We continue on the story In verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, 
they were outraged and went and sold their master, excuse me, told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then the final verse in this section, verse 35, says it this way. Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. When we don't always confess the things we've done wrong, we walk around with it as a weight. When we hold on to all the things others have done wrong to us, we carry it like a weight. But the weight of if we get this forgiveness thing wrong, we end up carrying all the weights that are not meant for us to take upon ourselves. We end up walking around with weight that is far too heavy for us to carry, that was never meant for us to be there, because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden and burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Come and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Friends, we are walking around, many of us, remembering what we've done wrong, who's wronged us. And friends, if we're not careful, we are getting this all wrong. We want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. And we forget that it's Jesus who paid the price of justice so all of us could experience mercy. Jesus paid the price for justice himself so others could experience mercy. So let's give another illustration of this. Sometimes, sometimes we could share it, and sometimes it's better or maybe really impactful to hear a story about someone who's experienced the power of forgiveness, who didn't want to walk around with her backpack weighed down any longer. And so I want to introduce you to Mary Johnson. This is a picture of her son. And I want to introduce you to their story and then the story of a man that she met named O'Shea Israel and how forgiveness isn't, who is forgiveness really for? And what does forgiveness really do for us? So will you please watch this with me for the next three minutes or so? We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, Thank a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother 
is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. Notice what she says. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. It doesn't diminish what he's done. It's for me. It's for me. She says, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It eats away at us. A common uh, illustration I've heard and used is unforgiveness or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You're sitting here stewing and it's eating away at your insides and they may not even be aware. You're walking around with the weight of all of the things that you've done wrong. You were wrong, that we're getting it wrong every single day walking through life with a weight that weighs us down. When I was, uh, I went to a leadership um, program a few times, and one of the sessions when we were there, there was a mentor, like a coach that I had, and, you know, we're talking about forgiveness, and he says, you know, do you, are you, do you want to forgive, you know, certain people? Are there people in your life that you forgive? I'm like, no, Uh, I'm just kidding. So I remember, so I'm like, okay, let's, he's like, okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down the name, or, you know, whoever's, write down each person that you need to forgive. And so, I write down the names of the different people and I'm trying to, you know, during my quiet time, who is it, who comes to mind? And I end up going to him the next time we have a session. He says, are you ready? And I say, yeah, of course, you know, I'm ready. Like, I'm sure. I probably had, I don't know, maybe 10 names. It wasn't a ton, but it wasn't a few either. And I wrote down their names and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to say, I forgive so-and-so, whoever that person is, for such and such, and start filling in the gaps. So I forgive this person for what they said to me here, what they did here, how I felt here, whatever it was. And then he would say, and and then I got 
barely into it at all. I'm like number one or two. I couldn't even get through the first one without just starting to bawl. Why? Because I didn't realize how heavy the weight had been on my shoulders. And you start to verbalize these things. I forgive so-and-so for such-and-such. Do I say I forgive my grandpa for cutting us off because of our race? And then what he would say is after each person, what my mentor was saying is like, then what you say is you take them, you say, Jesus, I take them off of my hook. In other words, we want to hold on to all the things and we're carrying it. And we feel like we don't want to let people off the hook because if we let people off the hook, we have the wrongful assumption that that means we're okaying what they did. But the fact of the matter is, is we're not meant to hold on to this weight. And so he said, say, I forgive so-and-so for such-and-such. Jesus, I take them off of my hook and I put them on yours. Because Jesus on the cross carried the burden and the weight of all sin. Yours, mine, past, present, future, all of it. And when we come to the cross, we either let the power go to the wrongs of others or the cross of Christ. Who do we want to place and what do we want to place our power and our hope in? See, Lisa Turkhurst, she, her, her, there was, her husband was in, unfaithful. She preached a sermon about it at a conference I went to, then wrote a book about forgiveness. Here's a quotation that I want to close us with. It says, the real payoff, remember, we're talking about financial accounts, settlements. The real payoff of forgiveness is that you deserve to stop suffering because of what other people have done to you. In other words, the only antidote for the f- poison that is unforgiveness and bitterness is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is the power of the Holy Spirit who makes us more like Christ. Because when he comes in, he does some spring cleaning and gets rid of those things that are not of Christ. Friends, I know this is far easier said than done. For some of us, this is a process that we may need to go and find a godly counselor who can help walk through that process of saying, I forgive so-and-so for such-and-such. Jesus, I take them off of my hook and I put them on yours because I don't want to still hold on and walk around this world with this weight because Jesus came, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy came that we may have life and life to the full. Life to the full is not weighed down by bitterness and unforgiveness. Yes, friends, we've done wrong things. We are the one who did wrong. We confess our sins. God is righteous and just to forgive us of those sins. Yes, we've been wronged. But when we experience forgiveness, we can then be dispensers of it. And I hope and I pray that we never get forgiveness wrong by thinking it's something we hold on to and ending up in a metaphorical prison, just like the man in the servant in this parable was in an actual prison. May we not be in a prison of unforgiveness, bitterness, and hatred. When Jesus come, and the truth is, his life, death, and resurrection sets us free, and the truth, friends, will set you free. Who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to ask for forgiveness from? And how do we bring this all to Christ and say, Jesus, I don't want to carry it anymore.
set me free. So I may live for you, I may be a light for you, and I may show forgiveness and grace that points others to you. Father, we thank you for who you are, and I thank you for each person who is part of our service again, Lord, and recognizing that this is a heavy topic, literally a heavy, weighty topic for us today. And so, Holy Spirit, you alone know the wounds, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the hurt that are in the crevices of our hearts that maybe we gloss over. Lord, only you know what it is that when we, if we were to actually verbalize, we may break down and start crying and bawling because we did not know the weight that we were holding. Holy Spirit, only you know the poison that's inside of us and only you can clean us out through your power because the same power that rose Christ from the dead lives inside us. Help us, Lord, to become more like Jesus, to forgive those who hurt us, and to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.